Hello and thanks for streaming this episode from ACF Church. Our hope is that this word would encourage you to walk closer with God and with your local church. We hope you consider partnering in the work God's doing here by joining a life group, serving, and giving. If you'd like to give financially to the mission of ACF Church, you can do so safely on our website at acfak.org or by texting the amount to 907-341-4213. Now prepare your hearts to hear God's word. doing this morning? All right. My name is Stuart. I'm one of the pastors here at ACF Church. And whenever I see that video, I don't know what you think of. I think of conspiracy theories. And when I think of conspiracy theories, you know what I think of? Tinfoil hats. So if it's okay, I decided I was going to make a tinfoil hat. You're going to see some of my incredible creative skill today. It won't be too elaborate, but it will protect me from those voices. Someone did say that I need to have shiny side out, though. So That helps the uh, implantation of ideas from the government to stay out of my head. So me know what I'm talking about. Does that look all right? I can't see what it looks like, so I have to trust your opinion. You know, we're right in the middle of a series called Fooled, and we are looking at and really asking and then hopefully answering the question is, are we fools as Christians to believe in a real Jesus Christ who lived on the earth, who died, was put in a tomb, and then raised from the dead, and is really and truly alive today? Are we fools for believing that? Two weeks ago when we started this series, Pastor Brian gave us three uh, pieces of evidence, and the first is the evidence of a changed life being one of the best evidences of, a, of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Our changed life, that we've come in contact with the living, breathing real Jesus Christ, and because of that, we are forever changed. Uh, Also, that individuals and large crowds saw Jesus after he had resurrected from the dead, that he wasn't just someone in a tomb, but they had actually seen him, eyewitness accounts that we can read about the resurrected Jesus, and that Jesus was the perfect fit for Old Testament prophecy, that he was predicted, that that event was predicted, and that that is also evidence. Last week, we really um, asked the question or, or came to the conclusion that without the resurrection, We are in our sins still, even though we believe in Jesus Christ to forgive our sins. If the resurrection wasn't true, then we are truly in our sins, and we are of all people to be pitied. But if it's true, then we as believers in Jesus Christ in that resurrection, we have a hope for all eternity of something much, much better. So that catches us up today, and we're going to continue on reading in 1 Corinthians 15, which is our passage, or a chapter we're going through during this series, leading up to Easter this year, uh, which is on April 1st, which is April Fool's Day, and it's kind of the, the, we thought it'd be a great idea, the premise of our series, uh, to look into the different ideas and the the evidence of the resurrection. Is there evidence out there that really points to 
uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So today we're going to be in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, and we're going to start in verse 20. Um, and if you have your Bible, go ahead and open up there. If you don't have a Bible, you'll probably, uh, they should be, you'll probably find one in the seats in front of you somewhere nearby. Um, if you don't possess a Bible in your household and you want one, please take that one, write your name in it. It's now yours. It's our gift to you. You're not stealing it. We're not going to have life safety tackling you guys on the, uh, on the parking lot before you get in your car because you have one of the, the Bibles. We want you to have that. We want you to be able to read God's Word on your own. Uh, you can find the, the passage also on the ACF Church app. You can find the talk notes today or any week there. Uh, you can also find a version of the Bible to read. Uh, we'll have a, the, the Scripture as well behind me. So, uh, you, you have lots of options uh, to read along with the scripture today. Um, it's a mouthful, so if you brought coffee or water in with you today, go ahead and take a drink of that right now. I'm going to give you just a second uh, before we stand to read the passage. Um, so go ahead and stand out of reverence for God's word as we read his word. And I'm going to take off my tinfoil hat uh, also. So I'm going to put it right here, though, because that's a pretty fine-looking hat. That's all I got to say. All right, 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as, in, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom of God, or delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. He must for he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him. That God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people being baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. All right, thank you guys very much. You can go have a seat. Take another sip of water. That was a mouthful, but we're going to walk through it today. So the tinfoil hat, you know, what are they? It's supposed to protect us from, like, ideas coming in, right? It's supposed to maybe keep the government from reading your mind. Um, if the shiny side's out. So that's important. And we want to guard our minds this morning. We really want to seek the truth. And I want to encourage, that's, that's why we're here this morning. I hope that's why you came to church, is to, to know the truth. And that truth can truly set us free. Um, so I'm going to ask you uh, to guard your minds this morning and to, to truly evaluate. Uh, maybe you're, you're in that position where you're, you're, you're seeking the truth about Jesus Christ and his resurrection. Um, and you haven't made up your mind. And I'm, I'm glad you're here. And I just want to encourage you to lean in uh, and to evaluate what we, what we talk about throughout this series. Paul starts out verse 20, and he's like super confident. He's so confident, he says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. So he moves from the beginning part of this chapter where he's just kind of asking, like, what if Christ didn't raise from the dead? What if Christ did raise from the dead? So he's kind of making this logical argument, kind of this back and forth. And in verse 20, he just makes the emphatic statement that he's so confident that Jesus Christ raised from the dead, that Jesus Christ is alive, that he just makes the statement. But in fact, 
Christ has been raised from the dead. And so that brought me to really start thinking about what gave Paul that kind of confidence to where he could make that statement. And so I wanted to look at, and look at um, this statement. It's, the evidence of the resurrection is there if you're willing to look. The evidence for the resurrection is there if you're willing to look. And so I want to encourage you to take a look with me this morning. And the first evidence, and it kind of piggybacks off of what Pastor Brian said two weeks ago, and that is that the changed life is one of the best evidences of the resurrection. We see that Jesus' closest friends and his relatives believed in who he was. They didn't always maybe believe that as maybe his family was watching him grow up, and they're like, we're not sure about this guy. But after his resurrection, his closest friends and family thought he was way more than just a a good teacher. They thought he was way more than just a a really great guy. Many of his family were willing to be tortured, pushed out of the community, uh, even killed, and as well as his closest friends, the disciples. Uh, Something in them changed, and something in them gave them that confidence to be willing to to go that far. By a show of hands, how many of you have siblings? It's okay, you can raise your hand in church. By another show of hands, how many of your siblings would totally rat you out to your parents when you were a kid if you like, had, had anything false in your mouth or you did anything that you deserved to get in trouble for. I have, I have a brother, yeah, thank you. Um, so you know my pain. I have a brother, um, and I would do it too because that's what brothers do, is if I did anything that I was trying to keep from my parents, my brother would be the first one like, you know, with the megaphone, like, hey, mom and dad, Stu's over here doing this. He would totally hold my feet to the fire. Or if I made a claim like, oh yeah, I got back at you know, 10 o'clock, I beat curfew. Oh, you were at 10.05. You had the stopwatch as I walked into the door. And I would do the same thing for him. We'd hold each other to the fire. So for me, one of the, an evidence of a changed life is Jesus' half-brother, James. And we call him half-brother because James, his parents were Mary and Joseph, whereas Jesus was through Mary but from God, right? So we call him half-brother. But he grew up with Jesus. He hung out with Jesus. He got to see kind of behind the, behind the curtain in the family, Right? And I don't know, I think about this as, as like we get our five kids ready to go to anywhere, really, church or the store. Um, and sometimes you guys say, oh, your family's so well behaved. I'm like, if you only knew the threats we have to make. <laughs> I mean, the, the wonderful angels that I get a, the privilege of interacting with before we come. But it's funny, the best fights, I don't know how you guys are, the best fights in our family are on the way to church um, when we're coming in uh, or at the grocery store. Uh, those are the best, the biggest breakdowns. But for James to change his life so dramatically, to go from maybe a slight disbelief to absolutely sold out and a leader in the early church to the point where he he wrote the book of James. It's in your Bible. If you just look over a few pages from 1 Corinthians, you're going to see the book of James. He was sold out believed that Jesus was not just a, a man who died and that was it. Was a good teacher and that was it. He believed that Jesus Christ was the son of God who died and rose again for our sins. So that to me is like, that personally like drives me to go... There's something about this. His siblings even believed in who he was. Um, something else that we've got to really struggle with if you want to disprove the resurrection is you've got to deal with the fact that uh, where's the body? And you may be thinking, well, 2,000 years later, yeah, it's, it's going to be hard to find anybody, right? Sometimes you hear about archaeological digs and they find a body from antiquity and they're like, ah, we, it's somebody. We're not sure who, but we find a body. You know, it's kind of like a needle in a haystack kind of thing. Um, So I'm not talking about maybe where Jesus' body would be today if he didn't rise from the dead, because that would be hard to pinpoint anyway. So we could say, well, where's the body? Bring it out if he's he's around, and you could say, well, it's been 2,000 years, not likely we're going to be able to bring that body out. 
But really what I'm asking here is, or that needs to be asked of the skeptics is, where was the body the days and weeks right after Jesus' death? That's really what we're getting down to, right? And I've been to, uh, I've attended people at bedside who have died in a hospital and they rolled them out. I witnessed that, other people witnessed that. Then we went and followed up with a memorial service, an open casket where we got to sometimes hundreds of people see the body. I'm trying to be morbid this, this fine Sunday morning, but um, bear with me a little bit. And we watched that body then in that casket be lowered into the ground. And many of you have done the same thing with, with loved ones and friends. And there's a headstone marking that today. And if I wanted to go see that body, I, I could go visit the, the, the grave, and there's a high likelihood that that body is, is underneath that headstone, right? With Jesus, I'm convinced not only did he live and walk the earth, that he died on a cross and was put in a tomb, I'm equally as convinced that he walked away from that tomb because he was raised from the dead. So as we continue with Fooled, I want to look at a couple of the ideas that have been put forth throughout the years, uh, some conspiracy theories about how Jesus resurrected from the dead. And so before we get there, I just think it needs to be said that Jesus is not a made-up hero of some fairy tale story. He really was a, a human being who was born on earth, lived a life, and died on a cross. That he's a real, a real person in history, just like you and I are. I, don't, I didn't know this, and maybe you knew this, and maybe you didn't know this. There are 11 independent, non-Christian um, accounts of Jesus Christ these come from Roman, uh, Samaritan, Greek, and Jewish historians, none of whom believed Jesus was the Son of God, but they did believe that he was a real person who walked on the earth. Eleven independent sources that can verify that Jesus really existed in, in the course of human history. As I thought about that, I thought, I don't know if I could prove that my great-great-great-grandfather walked the earth to that extent. I might be able to, if I dug really hard, if I got rid of, even on the internet, I, I did. I, I searched for my great-great-great-grandfather. And you know what? Nothing. I got nothing. Maybe I need to go to Ancestry.com and figure this thing out. But if I had to go find actual printed evidence, talk to, or read stories of people who interacted with my great-great-great-grandfather, my maybe even just my great-grandfather, it would be hard-pressed to find maybe one or two, maybe some, an obituary, maybe like an award. Um, for my uh, great-grandfather, I have the only piece of evidence I have, and I just got it on my most recent trip to Tucson, is a, a medallion that has his name written on it. That's it. That's the only piece of evidence I've got for my great-grandfather, let alone go back a couple generations. I believe that based on those 11 independent sources, that's pretty impressive that Jesus was a man of history. That's outside the eyewitnesses that we have that we recorded in the New Testament. So the first theory has a, a fun name. The first theory that people put forth about trying to explain away the, uh, the resurrection is the swoon theory. It's, it's a very odd sounding name, but what it really says is that Jesus was only mostly dead on the cross and that he was put into the tomb alive and that he then walked out of the tomb and then appeared and people thought he raised from the dead, that he was resurrected, right? And when I think of mostly dead, I think of like Miracle Max and Princess Bride, if you've seen that movie. 
and Wesley, the hero of the story, is lying there, laid out, and he's dead, and his friends need him back alive because they have to storm the castle, right? And Miracle Max says, like, he's only mostly dead. And then he's like, I've seen worse. Um, that's kind of what I think about. But there's some problems with this theory. The first is that the Romans, they were professional, like, torturers and killers. They took this really seriously, and they had perfected this. They were known for this, for being very barbaric and being able to extract the most amount of pain out of somebody before they died. Jesus was not the first dude that they hung on a cross. He was just one of many in a long line of practice sessions that they took very great pride in. They would have known when a body was dead. That was their job. They did their job very well. They were professionals. Um, The second is we have eyewitness accounts in the New Testament of a spear being thrust into Jesus' side and blood and water coming out. I'm not a medical person, but those who I've read said that's a really good sign that he was either dead already or was going to be really soon after that. This wasn't like a paper cut that he got. Um, that when they took him down then, the Jews would have taken cloth wrapping, um, dipped in things to make you smell not so bad, and they would have wrapped his body super tight in that and put him in the tomb, which then had a big stone rolled in front of it. It was dug into a cave, stone rolled in front of it. Um, then they put generally a seal across that, which would have been like a string with some clay and wax mixtures with a, a seal pressed. And then the Roman guard was placed to guard that tomb to make sure no one touched that seal. They didn't care about the body. They didn't care about anything else. They just made sure that nothing moved on that seal. That was their whole job in the world. And for not doing their job, they could have been up to and including they could have paid that same penalty of death for letting that seal be broken. Um, while they were on guard. Some people ask, well, how many guards were there? Was it like one dude standing there with a you know, spear? And he's like, it's kind of like the Monty Python thing. and um, Just totally incompetent. Um, at the very least, four Roman soldiers would have been placed. These are professional soldiers as well. Um, most scholars agree that there's probably more likely 20 um, professional soldiers guarding this tomb. They would have taken shifts sleeping throughout the night, um, the majority of whom would have been up. Um, they would have had four-man shifts sleeping. Um, just the way they practice, and we know that from other historical accounts uh, of how the Romans did things um, as they guarded. So you have to believe that. Um, and somehow, Jesus was weak enough. So then you have, ultimately with this theory, this swoon theory, you got to believe that Jesus was weak enough to appear dead, dead enough to where they would bury him in a tomb, right? But strong enough to wiggle out of these, the, the grave clothes and leave him perfectly undisturbed because we saw that somehow roll a stone away, sneak past the guard, and then healthy enough to be able to convince the disciples he wasn't just rejuvenated, but that he was actually resurrected. A limping, maimed, barely alive Jesus is not that inspiring to to force the disciples or or to drive the disciples into willingly giving up sometimes, in many cases, their lives for this belief that Jesus had raised from the dead. So it just doesn't ring true to me. It doesn't seem true to life. The second theory is that Jesus' body maybe was stolen. Maybe some people came to the tomb in the middle of the night between Friday night and Sunday morning and took the body. Maybe it was the Jewish leaders who did it. Well, we know that probably isn't likely, and just logically thinking through that, in fact, they were so worried that somebody would take the body, the Jewish leaders went to Pilate and said, hey, give us a Roman guard to guard this tomb, seal it, make it secure, because otherwise somebody might come and steal it. So they went to extreme measures to not to. Also, if they didn't like the Christians, this early, early sect of believers who were following this new teacher, if they, and they just executed the leader, 
and the, 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 this group was now claiming that they rose from the dead, all they had to do was produce the body. So if they had stolen it, why would they not early on in the days or weeks after just say, ha, ah, joke's on you, here's the body of Jesus. He didn't rise from the dead, he's, de- he's dead, so your leader is a fake. They didn't do that. So what about the disciples? They had motivation, right? They, they would want to see him raised from the dead. But do you really believe that the disciples had the skill set to sneak past the Roman guard, to break that seal, to take the body of Jesus, yet leaving the clothes undisturbed as we're told in first-hand accounts? If I'm stealing a body wrapped in clothes, I'm, I'm not going to undress the dude and, and throw him over my shoulder and take him, leaving the, the burial clothes, right? That doesn't seem to ring true to what we see as the evidence. And then those disciples would have to go on knowing that's a lie, assuming they could get past all of that, and they would have to alter their lives in such a way that they gave up everything. They were willingly engaged in uh, ridicule from their, their friends and family, kicked out of their communities, put in prison, and executed. So you have to believe that, especially since we're told that right after, as Jesus was being taken to the crucifixion in Mark, uh, Mark records that the disciples scattered. They all went away because they were scared of what being associated to this guy who was condemned to death would mean for them. Later in the book of John, chapter 20, we're told that the disciples, they had gotten back together, but they were meeting behind a locked door because they were scared that the Jews might come and and also enact the same punishment on them. So that band of people might have taken the body. You still have to deal with the Roman guard. You still have to deal with, then they're willing to be killed and tortured because of that belief. And I just don't see that ringing true in reality. So another piece of compelling evidence for me personally, as I think about the resurrection and what motivates me to believe, is the guy who wrote the passage we're reading from, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul, the Apostle Paul, as we call him, one of the early church leaders. He wasn't born the Apostle Paul. He was born Saul. Um, He was born into a Jewish family, a devout family. He was raised and educated to follow the laws of Moses to the T, a Pharisee among Pharisees, we're told in Scripture, He had no motivation whatsoever to support this band of Christians. In fact, he was actually given letters, which was authority, to go find any Christian and bring them back for trial and punishment and up to and including death. He was a rock star in the Jewish community at the time, punishing Christians. That was his claim to fame. He had no motivation whatsoever to have anything favorable to say to Jesus Christ. So what changed that then he writes a, a majority of our New Testament letters? What changed in Paul? Well, on the road, to, uh, the road to Damascus where he was going, he was pursuing Christians, and a bright light appears, and he hears a voice that says, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you? He just hears the voice. I'm Christ who you're persecuting. I've, I have ordained you to go spread the good news to the Gentiles. News to Paul but he, we're told later in other parts of Scripture that Paul interacted with the risen Jesus Christ there. Paul was so convinced that he's literally writing many of his letters from prison because he so wholeheartedly did a 180-degree turn to follow and pursue Jesus Christ. Paul had zero motivation, zero to gain, everything to lose from, from going from persecuting and hating Christians to being a Christian and a leader in the early church. That, to me, is super convincing. It's kind of like if you think about like Donald Trump campaigning for Hillary Clinton in 2020. That's kind of the dramatic turnaround that we see in Paul's life. It just doesn't make sense. So Paul really starts off this passage, but in fact, Christ Jesus has been raised. 
And that leads us to my second point today, which is the resurrection is the answer to our biggest problem. The resurrection is the answer to our biggest problem. Why do we need the resurrection? Well, it answers really our biggest problem. 1 Corinthians 15, um, right at the beginning, we see again, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So, so Paul starts off with this contrast between Adam and Christ, right? So I want to go back. It kind of draws me right back to Genesis where we, we read about Adam. So God creates everything we see, the universe, the, the earth. It's perfect, right? Puts Adam and Eve on the earth. And what does God do? He doesn't just disappear. He comes down and spends time with Adam and Eve, right? Face to face, talking. And they could stand before God on their own merit. And this is a huge point. They were covered in their own righteousness. They had not yet chosen to disobey God. So they could stand before God with that righteous covering. But they chose to to disobey God, right? God gave them a choice because he didn't want to create automatons, these robots that that you have to obey me. He wanted people to make a legit choice. You have to have the ability to choose wrong. They chose wrong. They chose to, to, to please themselves and not do what God had said. And they said it, but they were, they were naked and they were ashamed. They realized they're naked and ashamed. I don't think they looked down and went, wow, I'm, I'm exposed. This is embarrassing. I don't think that's what it was all. I think what they realized was when they made that choice, their covering of righteousness was gone. They were naked before God. They were ashamed that they no longer had the merit to stand before God and they knew it. Their righteous covering was disappeared. So from that point on, we all have two things in common with them. The first is we inherit sin from the original Adam, and that's one of the points Paul's making. Death came through one man. We all are going to die. We all inherit that. It's, it's genetic in who we are. We all make choices to do our own thing and turn our back on God. And the second thing is we have a need for a righteous covering. We need to have our sins taken care of, right? If you ever doubt, like, the validity of whether we're born good or, or, or evil, um, good or bad, propensity to sin or propensity to do good, um, I give you as evidence my five children. I have five wonderful little girls, um, and I want to talk specifically about the, the one-year-old. Um, her name's Charlotte, and uh, we call her Charlie, and this, I call her 15 months, right? We, as, if parents, you, you, right now, you, you measure the age of your kid in months, um, and some non-parents are like, why do you do that? It's so stupid. It's one-year-old. Why can't you just say one-year-old? Because it's only month by month that this child survives. Um, so <laughs> I'll be sitting in my living room, just minding my own business, my one-year-old's playing, she will pick up something that she is not supposed to have. And as a good daddy, I say, drop that. And she turns, looks at me with her sweet blue eyes. I swear she bats her eyes and even winks at me sometimes. As she throws it in her mouth, turns, and runs away with a maniacal little laugh as she disobeys her daddy wholeheartedly. She knows she's disobeying, because why else would she run? Um, Because she knows what's coming. Don't think we outgrow it. Don't think for a minute that we outgrow that propensity, right? So in college, I had a friend who was in psych class, psychology class, and he had an experiment, a, a project he had to do. So he decided to take a big cardboard box, huge box, and he put a hole in one side, and he painted it really cool looking, and he put it up on a tripod, took it to the local mall uh, in Tucson, um, set it out kind of in the parking lot by one of the big entrances, and it had a huge sign that says, don't look in the box. And then he walked off and watched what happened. And you know what happened? Almost to a T, 
They looked inside. Why? Because we were told not to. And you know that to be true. You tell me not to do something, I'm almost 100% likely to go try that, or at least think about a way I can justify doing that. We don't outgrow it. But God wanted to maintain a relationship. So we, we make choices that really, that take that righteous covering and just throw it away. And we need to restore that because we, we have a sin problem. But God wanted a relationship. That's the whole reason he created us, put us on the earth so we'd have a relationship with the God who created us. That's what he wanted. So he created a system of blood sacrifices where they would sacrifice animals and they had to be perfect, unblemished animals instead of, and that blood then would be a temporary covering for their sin. And it sounds horrible, right? Like, why would God like, ask you to kill animals? That's, that's horrible. That's half the point. One of the reasons I think that God instituted that was first it had to be, we have to, when we approach an unblemished, righteous God, we have to also be unblemished and righteous. So the animal has to be perfect. And it's supposed to remind the Israelites, this is horrible. He says, I, and elsewhere in scripture, God says, I desire obedience, not sacrifice. He would rather have us make the choice to not have to have a covering except for our own righteousness. But we don't, and we can't. We have a problem. So we instituted this thing, and it was, a, it was a constant reminder to the Israelites of the gruesomeness and the severity of their sin and disobedience.